0: Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. We give you the tools you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The tips and tricks, the context straight from the smartest and just most amazing people on Earth. And the action steps, of course, that you can take uh, to feel better, to support them, and to fight for a better world for everyone. Our guests are authors and professors, scientists journalists, doctors, policymakers, um, business leaders, CEOs, investors, uh, astronauts, even a reverend. This is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, where you can email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join uh, thousands of other smart folks and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, at important, notimportant.com. Folks, this week's episode is asking, hey, what can we learn from plants? And our guest is the tremendous uh, Dr. Baronda Montgomery. She's the author of the new book, Lessons from Plants, from the Harvard University Press. Folks, uh, her book and this conversation are were incredible. So thoughtful, so, so practical, so eye-opening. Um, I'm, I'm truly not sure if I will ever look outside my window, uh, down at the ground, at a vegetable, up at a tree, or at the ability to mentor, to share space, or to parent intentionally, the same again. I'm so thankful for, uh, to Dr. Montgomery for, for taking the time, for writing this book, for, for all the work she does, um, and for, for sharing this stuff with us today. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Beronda Montgomery, author of the new book, Lessons from Plants our guest today is dr baronda montgomery and i am asking her what can we learn from trees dr montgomery welcome
1: thank you so much it's a pleasure to be here
0: no you say that now give it an hour (laughs) dr montgomery could you tell us real quick who you are and what you do
1: Yeah, so I'm Baronda Montgomery. I'm currently a faculty member at Michigan State University, but I've been a writer since I was about four or five, if if we listen to my mother. Um, At Michigan State, I'm a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology, also microbiology and molecular genetics. All that to say, I study photosynthetic organisms, plants and some bacteria, and try to understand how they know what's going on around them and translate that to good behavior and productivity.
0: So was one biology not enough for you? You had to do like six
1: of them? No, you know, I think I I must be a good colleague because it's I call it the share baronda plan. I keep getting jointly appointed (laughs) in multiple departments. So either I'm a pain in the neck and they all want to keep an eye on me or I'm a good colleague or both. (laughs) Uh, I'm
0: sure it's good colleague, but it's just like, boy, sometimes I feel like I have two jobs. You've got 12. Yes. That's awesome. Well, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, We're going to dig into this thing, find out more about you, why you do what you do, how you do what you do, what we can learn from it. And then sort of our bread and butter is, as we like to say, uh, action steps that folks can take uh, to to support you, to do the right thing. We try to, in a world where everybody is very busy, there's a thousand... Literally and figuratively, fires everywhere, and people are being pulled in a million directions. We try to give them really specific action steps they can take to to make themselves feel better, but also to you know build a better world for, for everybody. That's not great. Just That's great. Some folks. So we'll get in there. Uh, but we do like to start with one important question, uh, Dr. Montgomery, to set the tone for this wild ride. Um, instead of saying, "Tell us your entire life story," uh, I'd like to ask Bronda, why are you vital? to the survival of the species?
1: You know, I I like to believe I'm vital to the species because one of my guiding principles is reciprocity. And so I try to be the best I can be as an individual, but I recognize that I'm self as an individual, but self in a community. So I really do try to also contribute to community and see how I can really help in whatever community that is. My family of origin, personal, professional, always striving for my best personal self, but also to, to... contribute back to the community that I'm in.
0: Well, that's very thoughtful. Um, Are there days where you would prefer plants over people?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, it's funny you say that. It's actually how I became a biologist instead of instead of going to med school. So growing up, everybody was like, "You should go to med school." I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with people every day. You know, I want <laughs> sometimes I just want to sit in the greenhouse with plants or in the middle of right. a forest or something. So there are days where plants are much better companions for me than people. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel that way about my rescue dog, and then sometimes I feel like even he just walks away from me, and I'm like, well, what, I, I got I got nothing. Like my kids don't pay attention to me. My My dog's not interested.
1: That's how I feel when one of my plants dies. I'm like, what is this? No. Right, right, right. You're all I've got.
0: Well, thank you for that thoughtful response. Uh, I really appreciate it. So I want to dig in and try to answer this question, which you have already answered a number of times throughout this book and throughout all of your work and and being a part of seven different departments. Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, what can we learn from plants and not just in some theoretical way, but in a really... Applicable way because you know as we talked about people are they're confused a lot these days they're also more activated than they've ever been they feel pulled in a lot of different directions and when you're doom scrolling or you're trying to figure out what to do with your life or whether to have kids or how to raise your kids or where to live or which of these problems to do or uh, you know whose GoFundMe you need to contribute to because the medical system's broken um, it's easy very easy and understandable to to just flail, essentially. Yes. Um and and we all do it. But um you have taken great strides to under to to emphasize living a life, a very specific, constrained life, uh, with purpose. And and you managed to translate those examples in such a wonderful way. So I'm, I'm excited to dig in. I've basically dog eared I mean, like every other page in your book, oh, wow. Thanks. Um, it's, it's, it's the best. I'm, I just sit there reading like, what? That's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I want to talk about your first sentence because it is a, yes. a, a such a fascinating but also crystal clear thesis for the rest of the book, which is, imagine a life in which one's entire existence must be tuned and tailored to the changing and at times harsh environment and then the clincher is a life in which there is no potential for escape because and it seems pretty easy to look past this sometimes plants can't just pick up and move um everything they do everything we take for granted or just don't even notice within their constraints is so unbelievable i wonder if you can explain to folks to start what you mean by developmental plasticity and why it's so vital.
1: Yes. So the the best and probably most common example of developmental plasticity, most of us have noticed in our home. And that's when we have a plant that's growing and you notice that it's bending towards the window. Um, So that really developmental plasticity is a change in your growth pattern based on what's going on around you. And I love to use that one because many of us have seen that and we'll just rotate the plant and not think much of it. But that's really the plant responding to bending towards the light. So, light is everything for plants because they use that for photosynthesis to make sugars, and sugars are their currency, like our dollars. So, they use those sugars as their monthly energy budget to drive their growth, to drive their communication, to drive all aspects of what they're doing. And so, they will change their growth patterns. We're not, we move, but they can change their growth patterns to make sure um, that they're able to get what they need. And so, that's the most common example. But in the book and other places, you, there are so many different. Different examples of developmental Mm -hmm. plasticity. And I think that's one of the first things that fascinated me by plants. And really, it's it's really grounded in my life. I started, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and every summer I begged my parents for us to move somewhere else It was hot and humid and just unbearable. And now I live in Michigan and I look at the plants in the winter and it really was that fascination with, I can't even stand this temperature range for a few seconds, but the plants are living there and making the most of it and really being driven to understand how they were doing that. But yeah, that developmental plasticity is fascinating to me about plants because we as animals don't do anything as visible as they do in terms of changing their development.
0: We really don't. Or again, we we complain about it, but don't realize how good we have it. Of course, some people have it much more difficult. That's but right. You. It's funny. I live in. Um, I I have spent the past. I was born and raised in Virginia, and I've spent the past uh, twenty years bouncing around. But the uh, past twelve years in Los Angeles, my wife and kids, um, where everything is on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that now we're we're back in Virginia for for now. And I, I always describe it to folks as, um, you know, if you come and visit during the summer, it is hot and it is sticky but it's not arkansas. That's right. and if you come in the winter, it's cold, but it's not rochester. That's right. <laughs> uh in both the depth and the length of it and it's nice we get all these four seasons and that's you know you really take it for granted and i and i thought about this part in your book where you talked about and again you like you we just notice these things on such a superficial level and especially with kids where you talked about the way you know the leaves turn colors and then they fall off the trees and that's not but you know, that's not for fun it's because again and and please correct me where i'm wrong but it's because uh to to use a game of thrones phrase winter is coming and they're only going to get so much energy cuz they can't go anywhere unlike birds or or us absolutely. and so they they can't just put a bunch of energy into these leaves they have to to preserve is that correct
1: it's absolutely correct so i always think about fall as a preparation period you know every time i see the leaves falling the plants have sense that winter is coming and they're preparing for winter. And you're right. So in winter, the days are shorter. There's less light available for photosynthesis, but it's also super cold. And so most of the mm-hmm. kinds of metabolic activities that they would have going on slow down. And so they have to minimize all the parts that they need to maintain over winter. So by dropping the leaves, there's less energy needed to maintain those parts. And they go into a period of rest. And so I love the four seasons. I grew up with them, but then I was out in California for a while and other places. But now living in a place where there are four seasons, it really is a reminder of how plants pace their life with the seasons. And I always say, humans, we don't do that. We just act like we're in summer all the time. We have the longest days, all the energy, we go full out. But plants have these seasons. And when fall is coming, they start to slow down and prepare for winter. And then winter is a period of rest. And what we see with humans is like now with the pandemic, we have to be forced into rest, whereas mm-hmm. plants pace their life with the season. So I try to mm-hmm. draw from that and anticipate a need for rest instead of always being forced into it from exhaustion or whatever falls on us, you know?
0: Sure, <laughs> yeah. sure, sure. No, and it's it's funny because it's so easy when you've got little kids or you've got animals in your house, but mm-hmm. also plants to sort of... Uh, you know, throw these personalities onto them. Yes, and and I also imagine the other way, which is I've I've always thought that one of my rescue dogs is like really close to talking. Like I, <laughs> I keep thinking, like God, he's got to be so annoyed that he's so close and yes. yet so far. But then I think, like, what would he say? How would he judge me? What would he think? Mm-hmm. And I imagine, you know, the plants in Michigan m- would feel similar. I mean, go with me on this yes. ride, but would feel similarly. To, to you who's like, oh, now I've come to Michigan and it's so cold and Arkansas was so hot. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, because we managed to persevere every yes. winter and we don't, we don't get to go anywhere. We're just, we're plugged into the ground, lady. And you, I drop my leaves. I do what I have to do. Yes. You know, I mean, it's it, the constraints are are incredible in a, in a situation like that. And yet they're there. And Damn. these trees live for hundreds of years and they're fine. Absolutely. So, Maybe no. we could take something out of that. Yeah, like a- you said. absolutely.
1: Every winter when, spring, you know, when winter is over and spring is coming and the trees are in their glory, I think, you know, there is a lesson in that. This is what we have to deal with. And I do. I complain every day, every winter. I've lived in Michigan for 17 years and I complain every day of every winter. And they're like, this is what we have to do. Go do it. Yeah.
0: Right, right, right. I'm so sorry that you get to get in a car with a heater yes. on. Like, yeah, that must be so hard for you. Um, I I appreciate that. Thank you for going down my my crazy lane with me on that. But I feel like it's an important. Part <laughs> it is of it. very much um, so. So, and that obviously applies in so many different ways. Like you said, in places with four season places that are uh, you know, when we look at succulents and the way mm-hmm. they they manage uh, to survive, and we just go, "Oh my god, how could they live out here?" And they're like, "Well, we we make it work yes. because we have to because we can't go anywhere." Um, I want to talk a little bit, uh, taking a step back. Um, um but also talking a little bit about your career I want to talk about um ecology yes which the the definition of ecology right is I believe it's the the study of um the relations of organisms not so it's not just organisms it's the relations of them mm-hmm. not only to to each other but also their surroundings yes and from studying your work and and your book and your career and getting to know, uh, scientists and teachers over the past few years, one of whom I feel like you would love this gentleman named Brandon Obunyu, mm. uh, who's a, who's a Brit Brown, and now we, I believe he's at Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, this great. Uh, just just genius young fella. Oh, I know um, him.
1: I don't know him personally, but I know him from social media spaces. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I will introduce you. Yes. He's amazing. Now yes. he's like writing for Wired. He's, he's yes. hiring in his lab. It's yeah. amazing. I would never be smart enough to work with him. Yes. He's one of those people where I feel like, and it's the same with you, you're using like 10% of your brain to talk to me and the other 90% <laughs> is just like going about your day. Anyways, you guys, and and but also those of us who are a little more in the sociological mm-hmm. anthropological side, mm-hmm. or, we're looking at these complex systems, again, thinking about ecology that we've designed for our societies and our economies. And I can't help but feel like this, again, sort of a grander, looser definition of ecology might be among the most important fields of this moment, right? How we relate to one another and the environment around us, whether that's the natural environment that some of us can escape from if mm-hmm. we want to mm-hmm. seasonally or or as we grow, some of us cannot, mm-hmm. our neighborhoods and cities, whether mm-hmm. we have trees or we don't, the industry around us, our workplaces, our labs, whatever. Last year, you were named a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Yes, Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. And I love that in receiving it, you said, uh, this might just be in part, but although such honors come in my name, the professional advances lauded arise from my leading a committed, creative, and successful team, as well as working within a community, including collaborators and supporters. And I'm thankful to each of the individuals, past and present, they've had the opportunity to engage in my path. That is about your surroundings. Absolutely. And, and Rhonda, you seem to have spent, and I definitely have watched like a bunch of your YouTube speeches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um you've spent so much energy not only on being involved in like 10 different disciplines at mm-hmm. your university, but as a mentor. Yes. Which is the, I mean, this is just an awful metaphor, but, you know, being a, a gardener for for this,
1: this yeah. group, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. When did you realize that you could be the steward, that mentorship and advocating for more and better mentorship could be such a significant part of your... Carving out your life and, and your career.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I you know I love the the metaphor of Gardner. I talk about it a lot as environmental stewardship, right? We have mm-hmm. stewardship over environment. I think part of it. Um, I've been a just super observant since I was a child that was always asking why as soon as I could talk. But as I was going through, you know, my own education, it became clear to me that the ways we define success, not only in a you know educational environment, but often in especially in the U.S is what you've achieved personally. And if you've achieved personally, whatever we value, whether it's having a lot of money or you know, prestige or all of these awards, we don't often ask questions about how you got there. We don't ask the people that you work with, whether they were honorably treated, you know, whether you were compassionate. And in fact, along my own studies, I saw a lot of people who were being really put on pedestals as you know, the mm-hmm. science geniuses. Who the students who worked with them have been damaged in the process, and sure. really early it became clear to me that I wanted to hold my myself dually responsible for what I did, the papers I produced, whatever awards I got, but how I got there, and it mm-hmm. wasn't okay for me to get to whatever seemed like success having damaged people along the way, and I think you know part of that is is founded kind of I grew up in a in a family where we all you know I'm one of five kids and. My mom would always say, "Well, what did you do today to help your brother or sister?" And I'm like, "Well, mm-hmm. can we talk about me for a minute?" And she's like, "No, yeah. Yeah, we're a family." So part mm-hmm. of that's, you know, in my own socialization. But I do, I do think also part of it, you know, having come into um, higher education as a black woman, I've trained in institutions where I've often the only one. I had to study the system that wasn't built for me to be successful. And I realized that that kind of communal care is one area that there was a lot of work we needed to do. So very early, I said that whatever platform I got, whether it was a good job or an award or whatever, it was never for me to stand on it and do a one-woman show. I wanted that platform to do a community-based play. And I think that even though we kind of, put on a platform, individual success. We all know that we get there as a group, whether it's someone who cleans Mm -hmm. the building you're in or who cleans your studio or your house, or you can't accomplish any of those things without the community. And I have just held myself responsible for really acknowledging every person who contributes. Just the other day, I was I was on campus. I haven't been on campus much, but I ran into one of the custodial workers and she said, I saw you wrote a book. I said, I have one in the car. Let me get one for you, right? And so she mm-hmm. was so excited. I said, you've been a part of this. You've been here for 10 years. So we've all sure. contributed to this. And that's just something I really feel it's ris- important for me to hold myself responsible for.
0: It seems like this, this again, this example that, that people use, and I'm going to use again, and it seems such... Uh, a lowest common denominator argument in the sense that, uh, you know, I try to take these complex systems and, and dial them down to first principles first mm-hmm. to understand, like, what are the immovable parts that we can't argue about? And then what are these biases we have to take apart on, that are on top of them? And at the same time, you, you see these examples, especially, I mean, in the past 25 years, but especially, and then over the past year, there's just immense amounts of of wealth and inequality in this country, and and people saying yes. like, ah, "Okay, how could we raise? We we don't want to raise taxes on the rich, ignoring that they're historically low, mm-hmm. or on corporations or services, whether it's emergency relief or it's actually proactively building better ones." And and you see these people, and we we ask these quote unquote leaders that are that have that run these massive massive companies, profoundly wealthy and successful companies, and and we hold them up. And 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 they argue against these services or public schools. And we're just like, I'm sorry, do you use stop signs? Yes. Or the police department Absolutely. or fire people? Or have you ever had a child in an ambulance? It's like, which part of the structural, like actual, you want to talk about infrastructure? Yes. The infrastructure of our country do you not participate in that you feel like two cents of your dollars shouldn't go to? And and obviously that's the much broader period, but like you said, this woman that works in the janitor services. Like, you can't do your job without the work that she doesn't. And that is applied everywhere.
1: Yes. Um, No, it's kind of crazy as hell when you think about, at least I think it is, that we are obsessed with philanthropy. Um, You know, and I have good friends who are fundraisers. I believe in philanthropy. But the ways in which we do it, we are obsessed with philanthropy. So we're obsessed with the billionaires and millionaires who give money, but we don't focus on the fact that they hoard it before they Mm. became a philanthropist, right? And so I think that we have to tease some of these things apart. And I think we all should have a spirit of philanthropy, but it's problematic when people are hoarding and then they give back in ways that they probably should have been giving back anyway. And then we celebrate them for being, you know, it's really crazy to me. I agree with you because we don't tease apart the ways in which we all are dependent upon the core infrastructure and yet the, some of us who are the, you know, I shouldn't put myself in there. I have some privilege compared to others, but it seems it's the least who are able to give, who are the ones who have to give the most. And then others who are hoarding give back. And we're like, oh, we're so grateful. Thank you for your philanthropy. We really have to turn that on the head. I think it's crazy as hell. I <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm fully with you. And I feel like we could have a whole other conversation about this. But it, it, and, and again, without getting too too fired up about it. I mean, it's true. You see, you see, oh, look, they gave this donation to this university or to this climate change fund or, or whatever it might be. And it's like, yes, but they don't pay taxes. Yes, yes. Which is, look, it, it does. And, and I'm pretty far on the, on the left at this point. But, uh, you know, is is it often spent poorly or in a mismanaged way? Of course. But also, like it has the, the essential services and infrastructure have been quite literally bankrupted for so long that you wonder why can't we build uh why can't a state build a website uh, for, to, for COVID testing? It's like, well, how long do you have for yeah. me to tell you like how those structures have been there's no IT department yes. like what, what are you talking about how would they yes. because because no one pays for them um it's it's infuriating and look philanthropy is wonderful i have yeah, i believe I, in I, it absolutely i contribute as as much as as we are able to and often more more than my wife would prefer me to um and uh you know it's it's these things can make a difference i have friends who work in it who work in pediatric cancer, which is something that yes. just should not exist. It is infuriating. Make it go away. That is great. But we, the, the, the long tail of that is, is that GoFundMe pays for half of our country's that's medical right. expenses. that's right. I was about to say and that's that is, the
1: problem. Yeah.
0: There's a middle ground where we hover and everyone gets to participate. And there's a standard philosoph- uh, philosophical standard of uh, give back this much, this and this, but, but, it, there can be the base contributions that everyone has to make, yes. and if you've if you've had all of this wealth that you've been born into, or you've you've profited from in some way to build your companies, you should have to support more. And it's it's crazy. And like you said, we we have these arguments about the people with the least give the most. I mean, it's it's not even an argument. It's just math, and it's out there, and it's it's crazy. It's so well, much it's, harder. You know,
1: exactly. When we get to the place where GoFundMe is the way that people are dealing with the emergencies in their lives, whether it's healthcare right. or if there's right. been a tragedy, you know, it's interesting because it it you know, that's one of the reasons in the book I wrote about. Um, Nurse trees and young trees. Right. And to me, I love that philosophy of how forests work, where sometimes it's the older trees who have the ability to make more, to produce more. And they share that and everybody does better. you know, it's not that you're just sacrificing every all of the trees do better when the ones who are able to produce more share with those who aren't. And that's why I think we just we have walked away from the kind of natural lessons that we should have as biological organisms on this planet.
0: Can you imagine if huge orch trees were like, sorry, I built a business. You got to make it on (laughs) your own. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) Exactly. I want to come back to the the (laughs) mentoring part. Thank you for dragging us back. Two things. Could you tell me a little bit about what that looks like for you? Again, you work in 22 different departments. How does the actual act of mentoring and the preparation that goes into it. How is that a part of your day-to-day career and your week-to-week and, you know, semester by semester? How does that practically work and, and sort of further, you know, any tools and tips and philosophies you've found that can be universally applied? Yeah, I think, you
1: know, the biggest, at the core of how it works for me is recognizing that I'm not trying to reproduce myself. I think too much of mentoring works through people kind of, I call it imprinting, where you're like the mother duck trying to show the baby duck how to be just like like him. There's a lot of that that goes on in these spaces. And I think early what I realized is that some of that is well-intentioned. I think most people, when they're happy doing what they do, they assume someone else would be happy doing what they do. But at the core of my mentoring principle is to understand that I've built a life that makes me delusionally happy. I really love my life for the most part. I have my days, right? But I really love what I, and so what I try to connect with people and understand is what is the thing that would make them as deliriously happy as I am, not doing what I do. Mm. So Mm. I really do try to get a sense of, You know, why people have decided to be in a particular space? If it's working with me in my laboratory, why did you join the lab? And where do you want to go after this? And how do we center your goals? in the middle Mm -hmm. of the conversation. And so we Mm -hmm. have conversations about that. And then I try to bring my resources to that. I try to bring my experience to that. That's what I do on a day-to-day with the people I'm working with. At a larger level in the communities I'm in, whether it's a department or the university, I try to get us to think as a community about that. So often what we assume is that if we hire people, let's say we hire five people for the same job, we assume that they each should do exactly the same thing. I try to get us to focus on what we need done communally. And maybe you, Quinn, are better at talking to people and I'm better at writing. So why should we both be forced to write and talk to people? You can talk to twice as many people and I can write twice as many papers and we get everything we need to get done. So I really do try to get people to focus on how we can align what needs to be done with people's individual passions and motivations Mm -hmm. and gifts. Because if you can help people to work in the range where they really are working behind their passions people will work much harder and much longer because it's Mm -hmm. feeding some kind of internal goal. So it's really trying to understand that. How do we understand what people feel they need to contribute? How we understand what we need and have some kind of match as opposed to trying to force people into what our kind of idea of success is. I think we do a lot of that and it makes miserable people. And I don't like to be with miserable people.
0: (laughs) No, thanks. Had enough of that. Um, That is so, I mean, clearly... You didn't spring out of the womb with with that philosophy and, and methodology uh, imprinted or developed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it seems a long time fostered, and and I imagine there's there's a lot of uh, learning that goes along the way. It seems very intentional, and and you talk about in the book um, asking the, I think to get a, asking the right questions to learn from plants about how to live with purpose. Yes. Agency and intention. Yes. Now there's this big. I mean, we can go down the sci-fi bend and come back to Earth, but there's this big debate about intelligence, right? In, yes. In animals, um, I love octopuses. They're the. Gr- yeah. The, I mean, they're they're aliens. It's it's incredible, mm-hmm. right? Not just in like how cool they are. Everybody loves YouTube videos, but if you take like two minutes to read about them, they could not be more different than us. it's, mm-hmm. it's incredible. But also plants, who seem to be, from what I gathered, uh, constantly making decisions. Yes do i grow my stem or do i grow more leaves because i can't do both with this limited energies and again i yes. can't move yes um so i can think of t- 10 million ways we could all learn from 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 again this very constrained beautiful intentional life and as you call it intentional self reflection yes um and and i try i feel fail often uh as a dad asking myself and it's really hard in the moment again when they're young i'm sure you remember this and i imagine it's the same with a teenager though too am i acting and parenting with speed or direction yes and and i wonder if you can talk a little bit cuz you you keep talking about everybody else and and being this this shepherd how do you apply this intentional self reflection and, and the actions that come from it yourself. Like what is that? What has that done to your day-to-day yes. as a parent and a mentor?
1: No, I think self-reflection, I have come to realize, is one of the most important parts of my life for staying centered as much as I can feel centered um, and staying in tune. And part of it is... Uh, It's interesting. Part of the ways in which I really got to be really intentional about self reflection goes back to my being a scientist, where self reflection was a time for me to look at the data and see what Mm -hmm. the data was telling me about things. So, you know, at the end of each week, I spend a little time thinking back on which part of the week really felt fulfilling and happy to me. And I mark down which meetings those were. And I spend a little time thinking about which days I was super frustrated and what Mm -hmm. I was doing. And I write that down. And over time, I realized that you know, there's like one committee that always frustrates me. Then I say to my supervisor, I need off this committee. It's not working for me. And, you know, sometimes there are things that you can't get out of. And so I think about people who I enjoy being around. And if there's something I can't get out of, I go to the list when I've reflected on when I spent time with this person, I always laughed or I felt like we worked well together collaboratively came up with good ideas. And so I really do try to reflect on that. And if there's something that I can't get out of doing that I don't enjoy, then I try to draw people who I like being with into doing that with me. And so mm-hmm. I'll show up to the meeting knowing that I don't want to work on the meeting, the, the topic of the meeting, but I get to hang out with people that I like. And so sure. I think those kinds of reflections, you know, when are there times that I'm doing what I love to do and how can I bring more of that into my life? You know, when are there times and spaces where this really doesn't, it feels painful, it's not rewarding. How do I get out of that? And then who do I like to be with? Or not even that, who do I work well with? Because I, a few years ago, I started writing with a friend of mine who I like to be with. And we both realized that our writing got horrible because we were hmm. not good writing partners. And so, you know, sometimes no. you have to feel, figure sure. out who am I productive with. But I really sure. do take little notes. Um, it doesn't take much time. At the end of the week, I spend 10 minutes just making notes about things. And then sure. over time, I'll sit with that. But at the end of each year, I take a retreat and ask when would I, when was I deliriously happy this year? When was Mm -hmm. I not? Who was I with? And I reorganize my calendar to try to have more of the time and space that I felt rewarded and fulfilled and happy, and take things off my calendar that really leave me um, feeling drawn out. And I think we don't do that enough. We kind of just sometimes assume somebody put me in this job, I have to do it. Somebody put me on this committee, or I'm doing this in the community, and I just particularly after this past year and the last couple of years, my father passed away, then there was a the pandemic. I was already intentional, but I'm even more so intentional now because life can turn on a dime, right? But yeah. you're stuck in your house. And I was I was asking questions about my space. Does, it, does this space make me happy? I'm stuck here for nine months. This chair does not make me happy. It sure. has to go. You know, so it's from really small things to big things. But I think over yeah. time, it's really... First of all, giving me a sense that I have some control over parts sure. of my life. And even the parts that I don't have control over, I have over control over who I do those things with, which still mm-hmm. gives me a sense of control about being in that space. Right. So that kind of self reflection has been so important for me to feel grounded and hopeful and like I have agency um, sure. on a day to day basis.
0: And again, like those are all a list of things that I feel like I have written down in some Evernote file to do at some point (laughs) or to do every week. And then I make myself feel guilty that I didn't do them. whole different therapy session. You don't (laughs) need to be part of, but it matters. And then, like you said, it becomes and I don't want to uh, um, be be so cold about it. But if you sit once a week for for however many 15, 20, 40 weeks in a row and you notice that this meeting is making you unhappy, that's data. That's right. And now you go, oh, that's out of here. Yes, um, absolutely. But it's also, it's so funny. Like, it's, it's, we, we are so lucky. And, and again, not everyone is this way by any stretch. I mean, we saw, you know, how many folks on, on factory meat lines were not mm-hmm. able to get out of their jobs that's this right. year or to not say, like, I don't want to work with Sam because um, they're first to mm-hmm. process 1,500 pigs an hour or mm-hmm. whatever next to whoever and be exposed. Um, but a lot of us do have this this choice, and and I think, like you said, it's we don't always get to choose uh, the people, right? Sometimes it's family. That's, and then that's there's, there's right. The, just us getting out of some of that. But sometimes, like you said, it's your friend and your writing partner. It's like the friends that you're you can be amazing friends with, and you vacation with them once, and you're like, oh, we're not doing that again. That's, we can keep being friends every <laughs> that's week. Right. It's so great. We're not doing this thing, and that's, that's right. fine. And we're on the same page. That's great. But again, how lucky are we? Because plants don't get to do that. They don't get to go like, well, Sam the wildfire, like not interested in yeah. this guy. You can't move. <laughs> That's it. Stuck here with right? you. Yeah. And maybe you're an annual and you got one shot, right? That's I so mean, true. Like, yes. We have so much to, to learn from that. But okay. I, I I do, I appreciate um, you mentioned very briefly uh, your dad. And yes. you mentioned how things like COVID um, can give us very quick, very sharp perspective. Yes. Right? Whether it's trapped in your house like hate that chair mm-hmm. or loss. Yes. Um I I've I've been through it. I understand. It, it very quickly again it seems cliche, but boy does it does it does it actually work this way where everything that isn't important is made clear very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the first page of your book is a dedication to your dad. Yes. It reads to the memory of my beloved dad, roots of distinction bear great fruit. Yes. Um, can you tell me what that means and means to you and, and what he meant to you?
1: My dad, well, you know, I always say to people, so my dad and I were so similar that, um, you know, my mom would just say she should have named me after him. His name was Will. My mom said, I should have named you Wilhelmina because you're just, <laughs> you're so much like your dad. And so if, you know, my dad and I, re- our relationship, we danced together. We just had so much fun together. But I always say to people that my dad would, he could see me physically harm someone. And he would say to the police, you know, she didn't mean it that she don't take her. She did. She didn't mean that. I know she didn't. He just always mm-hmm. saw the best in me. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was really quite tragic. He was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And then three and a half weeks later, he was gone. So it was a very oh kind of God. rapid thing. And you know, fortunately, what you just said is true. I had I traveled a lot be, pre-COVID, and I had several trips. I was going off to Japan, and I, you know, when we got the diagnosis, I canceled everything, and I just went to be with family. And so that's a privilege, right? That was a privilege that I was able to do that. Sure. Um, but the loss, you know, lo- the thing about loss is it's difficult, and you should walk through the grief. But for me. It's also a moment for you to reevaluate some things to you know think about some things and so it was it was a time. it was he passed away in October of 2019. So I was processing that. I wrote a I had written, had a chance to write an article about him uh, recently when the book came out about how when he passed, I had planted some tulips and kind of forgot about them and was trying to get back to life. I planted those in November 2019. And then Mark, I got back to my travel schedule trying to honor him. Uh, because sure. he always he would always say to us you know you're from my roots and so everything that you do is a reflection of the roots and so you can't be sure. out there spoiled fruit bad fruit not you know <laughs> seeds not germinating so i that right. tried to get back to my life because i knew that's what he would want and then covid hit in march 20 and i who wanna, i i have a i used to have a really bad carbon footprint um, I was on the road all the time. Here I was stuck in the house. My son is the first year of college. So I'm in the house by myself. And I'm just trying to figure out that all out. And I walk out one day and the tulips are blooming. And, <sighs> you know, as they started to grow and I was taking walks through the neighborhood and spring is, you know, the trees are, the trees leaves are coming out. I really got this strong sense that, You know, plants were going on, even though we were all not figuring it out. And it was a strong lesson that despite everything that changes around you, you can sense that change, but you have to figure out how to move forward in your purpose. You have to move forward kind of single-mindedly, recognizing that the change is there, honoring the loss. You know, I I love to say we we haven't done enough national honoring of the nearly 600,000 Americans who've lost their lives. And you need to grapple with that. And then figure out how you move forward, honoring what the interaction with all of those beings has done. So for me, I have to move forward with joy and hope, and find a way to dance again because that's what my dad would have wanted. And so I do think that the plants kind of going about their purpose was a daily reminder: you've got to figure this out, how to go about your purpose, and bear the fruit that really will be the kind of evidence and legacy of the roots that he um, has served for us. Me, you know, served for.
0: That's amazing. Um, well, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. Uh, yeah. cancer is it is something else. Um, um, was now he seemed to use a lot of plant metaphors. Was your dad uh, as well into the uh, into into botany and, yeah. and well, biology? So, <laughs> and
1: <laughs> yeah, both my parents are I would say amateur botanists, so they they grew up in um, rural Arkansas. actually, my parents grew up um, in the Jim Crow South. Um, mm-hmm. And they grew up at a time where it was not uncommon for them to be pulled out of school to, to work in the agricultural field. So they have that kind sure. of, you know, not great history with plants, but they both loved plants. And my father sure. worked for years um, at a bank. And then when he retired, he started was a vegetable gardener and he Mm. didn't sell them or anything, but he just grew huge vegetable gardens and would, you know, deliver tomatoes and everything to people in the neighborhood. So he really loved plants. And uh, my mother also has a beautiful green thumb. And so they do, you know, I did kind of grow up with this uh, parents who were connected to plants, even if they weren't the plant scientists in the technical way that I am.
0: Sure. That's awesome. Um, It's, it is a, Fascinating and, and obviously very complex uh, history, but I'm I'm glad that you've found some sort of beauty that you're able to pass on to it. Now, now, what about uh, this this feral teenager that's been trapped at home with you? <laughs> Is do do does the does the plant life extend to him? Is he uh, how how does this part of him and, and I guess how do these lessons that you've picked up this year and over the past two years and over the, all this mentorship how how does that apply to your relationship and how you're continuing to try to raise him as he goes off into the
1: yeah the you know world. Uh, i there are certain things that you know i've learned from plants that has really impacted the ways in which i think about engaging with him and um you know sometimes i go to the default as parents we just you know we want to mold and Kind of, sure. we always want to treat our kids like topiaries, right? We want to just prune them until they look exactly how we, and so I'm very I, <laughs> bad at that. I have tried to understand that he has his own kind of agency. Uh, but one sure. of the things we did, and I, I did write about this in the book, when he was um, not quite one, we bought a tree. And planted mm-hmm. it um, and said, this is your tree. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have used that as a touch point. He hasn't shown the greatest. And like, he doesn't, he'll help me plant some things. I think it's more mm-hmm. to hang out with me, but he doesn't show his own kind of, connection with wanting to grow plants. But that tree, he has watched over the years and, you know, just he was home for the Christmas break and he was looking at it. He's like, I'm taller than the tree now. And so, you know, we've had (laughs) these lessons over the years where we watch its growth. There was a few years that it wasn't growing and we figured out something was going on and it needed, had a disease that needed to be treated. And he himself, you know, reflected on how plants have this great healing power. And he was like, (laughs) do we have that kind of healing power? I was like, we do. (laughs) I was like, you know, something. and so it's funny how he will touch um, touch on plants. And when he was young, the cutest thing, he realized how fascinated I was with plants. And he would tell his friends, go over there and ask mom to explain photosynthesis. And I would get all <laughs> excited and then they'd all <laughs> laugh, right? Because it's a joke. So I think he he, he he uses it as a way to connect with me, which I find, you know, sure. gracious, gracious and loving.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, that's what my children do, but with action figures. So I'm glad that yours is a much more productive than... <laughs> They oh, figure God. out how to get you going. <laughs> I know my my poor wife looks at my oldest and and just sees a little copy of me, and I think she's just like great. That's <laughs> that's all we need. <laughs> More of that. Two of you. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, we are in this, and I imagine you see this quite a lot with the work you were doing uh, with living things in the ground. We are in this climate crisis, right? We are coming out of starting to come out of covid at least the way we've experienced it so far right Mm -hmm. this thing is going to be with us in a number of different ways for a long time Mm -hmm. we've got just massive inequality right we've got this desperate need for environmental justice in a thousand ways we need better jobs cleaner air and, and more affordable water and we need a health system that is uh proactive and focused on communities and wellness and so i I read this section again it blew my mind in uh in isolation but also as i'm continually trying to find ways to 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 home this this philosophy of of how we can all work better together um it's a few different pieces here you said uh plants forge collaborative relationships not only with other plants but with groups ranging from, uh, fung- is it fungi or fungi? I'm the worst.
1: Both of them are, yeah. People, Perfect. Yeah. That's what I'm
0: looking for, It's <laughs> both. Uh, from fungi or fungi to bacteria to insects. And then later you said, this is just so wild to me. When the leaves of corn plants are attacked by a butterfly or marth lava, the plant releases a chemical that attracts a parasitic wasp, a natural predator of the larva. The attracted wasps feed on the larvae and prevent them from damaging the corn plant. We could stop there. That's crazy. <laughs> but this this last little bit, which is much later, but connects. And, and again, it, it's sort of this thesis, which is the, the greatest and most enduring lesson is understanding that each individual in a community brings particular skills and has the potential to offer unique contributions. And we're in this moment again where we clearly need every hand on deck, Brenda, yes. right? In this moment, all, all I get because we... We don't just do climate. I, I talk mm-hmm. to plant, plant ladies like yourself. I talk to cancer people, I, you know, whatever it might be, ocean, COVID. And, and No matter what it is, we get these questions of, what can I do? Yes. Right? Or it's emphasized, what can I do? Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's, it's endless. It's from Uber drivers to listeners to readers to, to parents. And, and the best response, which is simple, and, and, but it continues the conversation, I think, in a proactive way is, well, what can you do, Branda? And and obviously, there's there's a different bunch of concentric things we can bring into that, but that's my go-to reply because everyone has these unique skills, whether you've realized it or not, whether they're at your job or it's something you learned about in seventh grade or it's something you care about or brings you joy but you don't do as a job. Mm -hmm. Um, Or or it's your lived experiences that are entirely different from mine, which is something I try to emphasize, especially with this show, because Mm -hmm. I'm about as privileged as you can get in history. Mm But our goal is to provide specific action steps, right? Our listeners can take so not only with their jobs and their dreams, but also with their their voice, and and their dollar, right? Mm-hmm. And because we can take these personal actions every day, right? We can we can tweet, we can create art and things like that, and they're great, and they can add up to great change. They also make you feel good. But when I talk about our voice, it's also recognizing that probably the greatest in a data-driven way, probably the greatest levers we can take are these things that, that really work on the systemic change, yes, right? Yeah. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on the big but actionable and specific questions we should be asking of our representatives and of people that want to be in office, the people who can actually make that systemic change, whether it's your school board, Mm-hmm. Or your state representatives, or on the federal level, if you've thought about that at all, or whether we could work on that.
1: Yeah, I've thought about that because I think it can happen at so many levels, right? So I, I happen to be in a neighborhood association, and that's an association. There are of very are. small ones, all the way up to Congress. But you know, one of the things I hope I hope there are so many lessons we will take from from having been in this pandemic. But I think this the pandemic, apart from the public health lessons, it's offered us some real. Um, kind of things to chew on, to think about some of these things. So I think if we look at the pandemic, um, the ways in which it happened so quickly, right? The virus emerged and we had to respond to it. The pandemic on some level is not different from climate change. Climate change Mm -hmm. is just stretched out on a timescale. So we don't feel that same urgency. But I think what we learned in this moment... Some some of us don't. Some of us don't feel that same urgency. People like me
0: don't. Indonesia is moving their capital, right? And people that's on the front right. yeah. lines in yes. Brooklyn or Louisiana, we're already talking about getting, you know, walking away from that land. Yes, um, yeah. So I, I just want to be aware that you no, know that's that, true. I, there
1: are some I, of us who don't, some who do, um, right? But I think but, more of us could if we under this. We couldn't ignore this because it was so condensed within a yep. time climate change is as as important, if not more so, but we don't sure. have that same kind of in-our-face urgency. And I think sure. that what, you know, the the lesson about, you know, the the parasitic wasps that come in to attack the, the, pet, the pest of the plant, any other example that you use, there are a few things that emerge from that to me. One, mm-hmm. you have to recognize that there's a problem, right? So you have to be Aware. You have to not just be so focused on yourself and your own needs, but looking around to recognize when not only when things are going well, which we love to do, but recognizing when people around you, when the plants around you, when the ecosystem around you is showing some kind of sign of stress. And Mm -hmm. then the way that that parasitic wasp comes in is that the plant speaks. It sends out a signal that it needs help. And I Mm -hmm. think the reason I like to really point that one out, we often underestimate the power of that. When we think about any problem, COVID, climate change, we want to be the one producing the vaccine or we want to be the one who has the engineering solutions that remove carbon dioxide from the air. But Mm -hmm. the voice to speak to say that there is a problem and the person who has the capability to come in with the engineering to change it is as critical. And so that's one of the things that I really like to impress upon people is that if you're the kind of person who can talk about an issue with groups of people, you're speaking and amplifying the problem. That is so Mm -hmm. important. And I think too frequently, we don't value that enough. And people who have The connections with individuals who could help maybe give money or help, you know, find the scientist or the engineer. They don't value their role enough and we don't value their role enough. And I think that's one of the most critical ones. It's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I think often we think, you know, I am very committed to equity and people would say, what's your training? And I say, well, my training is as a plant scientist. And they're like, that is not going to help us with equity. But but you're also a black woman in academia. I am. But I also think (laughs) that even the plant knowledge itself, right? is, is sure. something that, and so I really think for people to think about what is their lived experience, what's their mm-hmm. personal experience, that that's what really resonates with people when you're talking about something from a personal, passionate experience. And I, so I think really getting people to speak up. I think often, you know, we were talking before about the big philanthropists who give millions of dollars and they're in the news. But, you know, there are some weeks where I say to my son, we're not having any Starbucks lattes this week. Whatever we would have spent on that, we're going to look around our community and find someone who needs help. And that's what we're going to do. So I think we also have to think about the small ways The voice we have, the small ways we can give, even if what you're giving is, is showing up to hand out water to someone because you don't have the voice to do something else. And that's one of the things I really like to get people to think about is if you look at an issue, let's say it's voting. What happens for us to increase voter registration is not just being Stacey Abrams. It's the people who are knocking on doors. It's the sure. people who are putting. And so I really like for people, whatever issue they're interested in, to study it from top to bottom. Ask mm-hmm. what goes into that. And don't just focus on what the big things are that have to be done, but whether you can show up and clean up a parking lot after an issue, if you can show up to Mark. So I think that's what's really important is teasing apart everything that goes into an ecosystem of an issue and asking which parts of that can I contribute to? Because I think too frequently we feel that what we have to offer is too small or not as impactful, or we're not the ones on the front page. But none of those things happen. Stacey Abrams can't get her work done without an army of people behind the scenes. Of course. And we have to be willing to be in that army as well as you know if we have the gifts and skills to be the one on the stage
0: yeah and that's it's so important and i feel like i have that thank you for sharing all that it's i mean you're just like the most well-considered person um uh it's 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 not just hey what are your skills right not just what can you do it's what are you comfortable with recognizing that again, from a lot of different levels. Maybe someone doesn't have time to, they they work 18 hours or or they drive a truck or whatever it might be. And their answer might just like smash this button and donate $2 if you can do it. Mm -hmm. Or it might be, you know, uh, one of my good friends, uh, all he wants to do is help as much as he can. He already does so much with his job, but is, uh, you know, it's like, all right, go knock on doors. Not comfortable with it. All right. What about phone calls? You, uh, by the way, three quarters of the time you get, uh, nobody picks up, right? <laughs> so you can just bank it and leave a message. Great. You don't even have to interact with people. And he's like, I, pure anxiety. I'm like, great. You know what you can do? Because it's 2021 texting. Yes. There's text banks. Yes. And that's where you see after the Georgia election, or I'm in Virginia, you know, what's happened in the past 10 mm-hmm. years. You don't get at the end when the when the director, when you're Stacey Abrams says, we texted you know, our youth texted 700,000 people, whatever, you don't get that by one person That's at the right. top by Stacy doing it or whoever it might be. It's everybody. You can do it from your couch, in your in your sweatpants, with your plants, whatever you want. Like, find, there Absolutely. are so many different ways to do that thing. So it's asking, like, it's it's what are your values and what do you care about? Yes. Again, on a local uh, level, you, no, no one's asking you to, like, go to city council and, like, bang on the gavel and, and make a speech if you can and you're up for it let's go, I'll drive you there, (laughs) you know? But like you said, someone's got to pick up the trash after that event so that you can leave a good footprint and you can show that like, this is what we do and who we are and that matters. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, What about, if, if you have any specific suggestions for their what someone can do with their dollar. Are there any organizations that you really love and you believe in supporting, whether it's locally or nationally or whatever it might be, where people can contribute in some way? Because again, that's the way some, whether it's on a big level or a small level, the way some people are, are like to support, they like to look at it and go like, I'm such a big fan of this person's work. How do I support that? Or I really care about this thing. Who's effective that they love.
1: No, You know, I one of the things that I do really recommend that people do, whether it's a national disaster or if it was in the middle of the voter registration or Black Lives Matter, I think too frequently what we do is give to the Red Cross, the National Red Cross. And I'm not yeah. saying you shouldn't give to the national organization, sure. but local organizations are suffering. And so, you know, one of the things that I love to do when there's ever any issue that's come up is to look locally for people who are doing that work and try to figure out how I can give to them locally. And I think that Mm -hmm. too many of us... um, you know, I think about the millions of dollars that went into the Red Cross and Black Lives, the National Black Lives Matter, and they'll do good money, do good work with that. But the sure. local organizers, many of the local organizers are the ones who are working 40 hour a week jobs or two jobs and still volunteering that work. And so, yeah. you know, part of that is reaching out to your local organization, city council, to find out, you know, who's doing that kind of work. But that's where I always go first. Local food banks, local organizers, Um to really try to support that on the ground work in your own community. I, I,
0: I love that very much because we talk about a lot about, and again, I, I, I try as as humbly and in, in a listening way as I can to to, to 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 bring in these lived experiences that are very different than mine. And we can, it's so important that we pass legislation on a federal level that, uh, you know, we fix water pipes and we fix hunger and this like that. You have to feed people today. Yes. And, and, and that's where groups like Feeding America, or like you said, your local Black Lives Matter, the person who's working 40 hours at the place down the street, or at the restaurant, whatever it might be, and then volunteering the rest of the time, like, you, you, we have to support those here, because climate, or COVID, or water, or hunger, whatever, it is, it is inherently, like, such a local thing. And, yeah. and you know, we, we, we have this, we have this problem in the climate movement, which never ends. And I think a lot of it, a lot of it, not all of it comes from good intentions, which is like personal actions are bullshit. They're not going to move the thing or it, you know, systemic actions don't matter because it's not part of your everyday life and it's never going to happen. It's too, too too theoretical. And I think a lot of it comes from folks who've just had a history of working on it for a long time and feel scarred that nothing yes. has happened, which yeah. I understand. It's like, hey, we only have so much energy Focus it on these things. A lot of it comes from, look, we know that these companies have been gr- greenwashing, for, for lack of a better word, for 50 years. We have emails and receipts and letters. They've been lying to you, you know, planting a garden isn't going to put those companies out of business mm-hmm. and make them stop polluting your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But- what I have realized and 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 tried to lean towards, as folks have told me, because all I, I ask for feedback all the time, is people really want this sort of portfolio of actions of what are the things I can do in my day-to-day that make me feel attached to this thing personally and in my neighborhood association or my school board or city council running for office, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, um, because it does happen on a day-to-day the air you the air you're trying to breathe is the air in your neighborhood yes. whether it's from postal truck or school bus or highways right um federal legislation will help buying a bunch of electric us postal things are going to help your school board can't do that you feel it on a day-to-day level right um so I, what i've realized is is trying to help point people in the direction of, of, of pull these systemic levers call your congress people as much as you can and insist on this and and march but also like do these things because sure there's definitely moments and applications where uh, one precludes the other where people go, look, I only have enough energy, Biranda, for, mm-hmm. for one of these things. Mm-hmm. I don't have time, I don't have money. But I, I I find that people become most invested, I guess, by by giving them the spectrum of things. So, so I appreciate no, I your, and I your you perspective
1: need, on that. Yeah, you need all of those things. And what you know, the one other thing I would add is trust the young people and find the young people. I think about, you know, I'm here in Michigan, less than an hour away from Flint. And yeah. There could have been legislation to fix that issue with the pinstroke stroke. And yet Little Miss Flynn, I forget her her name, Little Miss Flynn has been on the case. Right. And so I look on our campus. Some of the biggest changes we've seen on our campus are when the students organize. So I've learned to follow the young people as well and see where they are and ask them, what do they need? because sometimes they don't have the resources, but they have the voice and the energy. So I think that's critical too. Yeah.
0: I mean, in a lot of the times I get, and I, I, I'm technically not that old. I feel a thousand, um, but I feel even older. I feel like the, I don't know if you've watched Indiana Jones, but in the last crusade, when he goes and finds the knight who then just falls over when Indiana Jones gets, that's where I am at this point at the end of every day. Uh, Like, thank God you've come. Um, But Never more so. And in the most endearing way, when you talk to some of these younger people, and I'm like, what do you need? They're like, give us money and get out of the way. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, thank you, but also okay. Uh, and sure, great. And it's the same way, you know, we talk to um, you know, we've made an effort. I'm I'm a, a, a pagan atheist monster, but I was a religion major mm-hmm. at a liberal arts school. Um, so we we've made an effort to really talk to reverends who are and, and folks like that or um, you know Hindu leaders and Buddhist leaders mm-hmm. who are involved in environmental stuff and often their answer when I say what are the specific action steps are give us money to do our thing because you're not the right messenger and and that's true because the messenger really matters yes um so so I you know there's no I try to come at it as as humbly as I can which is just like no I I don't care mm-hmm. but what is the thing that's going to make you most effective and, and move this n- needle so so I appreciate that like you said it's it's the young people that Oh man, I get so offended when people are like, young people don't want to work hard. I'm like, ah, nah. have you seen that? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Yeah. Um, all right, Bronda, I've kept you for long enough. Last couple questions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you go back to whatever your 400 jobs are today. <laughs> um, um, Bronda, when was the first time in your life when you had, you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? <laughs>
1: So I'm laughing. There's a, there's, I have to give you two quick ones. So the first one, I didn't understand my full power. At four and a half, I started kindergarten and tried to have a crusade that I should be able to read to the class. And I got a teacher (laughs) fresh. She was, this was her first job out of college. And I said to her, I should be able to read to the class. And she said, no, that'll discourage the other kids. I said, this would empower them, I think. Sure. She refused. And I told her, I said, you're the worst teacher I've ever had. And she started Uh. crying. And I realized the power, and I I said to her, I'm so sorry. I said, if I were you, I wouldn't let a four-year-old make me cry. But I realized then the power of words, and I really tried not to, I'm serious. I I was just devastated for weeks, my mom said, about how I had hurt her feelings. But I think um, in college, I got involved in some organizing um, over some decisions that were being made about curriculum. And you know we did some sit-ins and all of that. And I realized then the power of voice in community it was sure. a collective of us. And so I think over the years, I've realized the power of speaking up, but it was around, you know, as a, a, a teen, early 20s, the power of the collective became mm-hmm. really critical to me. And so I've always tried to kind of guard the ways in which I build trust with my own voice, but then also ask, who do I need to be in community and conversation with? Because that's mm-hmm. where real power for change comes, I think.
0: Sure, yeah. sure. Um That's helpful. And that, that poor teacher. I know. They I mean, should have, they should have done that to her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my, my daughter is, uh, um, they're still doing Los Angeles public uh, uh-huh. school rem- remotely. We, we just, we haven't gone back for a thousand reasons, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, her, her teacher is a, is a first year trying to do kindergarten remotely oh, my during COVID her for her heart. first year. And, and, you know, some parents will get frustrated. And I'm, my mom is a kindergarten teacher. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just like, you gotta give this lady a minute. I mean, are you kidding me? Kindergarten, hard enough. Are you serious? Like I, I coached enough youth sports and, and swim lessons and things like that. That's that's awful. But if a kid doesn't listen in swim lessons, they just drown. You can yeah. hold that over them. <laughs> Kindergarten, hard enough over a computer. I watched this poor woman, you know, a kid just literally walks away. What can she do? She can't do anything. No, I know this, my friend has any? a
1: kindergarten who keeps turning off the video. And her mom's like, oh, you can't gosh. turn off the video. She said, I need a break. <laughs>
0: And I I empathize. I get it. No one is supposed to be on these computers that long, but these poor teachers. I mean, I tell you, I tell you. Oh my God. All right. Uh, let's pay it forward here. Who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, in the past six months. You can't say a plant. It's got to be a person.
1: (laughs) So that's a, that's a easier one than, than I, than I might've imagined. Um, but so I, da- I didn't even intend to write this book. My acquisitions editor uh, had a conversation with me after I gave a talk at a conference. And one of the people at the, at the press has just been so influential because I've been in this moment of trying to balance working from home with all the requests that are coming in, including mm-hmm. the one to write this article about my dad. And I said to her, I can't do it. And she said, you have to do it. And so that kind of spirit. First of all, there are not a a lot of people who are bold enough to tell me I have to do anything. And so, you know, for her to say you have to do it, she's like, this story is important. Um, I think that the reason that impacted me is that I I think so many more of us need to do that for each other, particularly in this moment where many of us are tired, we're overwhelmed. Uh, Some of us are sad and depressed. You know, it's been a long run. But I think sometimes uh, the question is not whether the person can do something, but if you know they have the ability, what she said to me is, what would make it possible for you to do it? And that was so influential to me because that's something I can do for other people um, is to say, you know, this is something you need to do. What can I do to make it possible for you to do this thing? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And so that... That was just a few months ago. And it just that has stuck with me in so many ways, because sometimes the thing that someone needs is for you to order them dinner. Right. Which is easy to do. And so I have really taken that perspective into my relationships to try to say not how are you doing, but what's going on with you and what is it I can do to make Mm -hmm. the things you need to do possible. And so that was really influential for me.
0: It's so practical, right It's yes. taking this like you can do it too that I, my sister-in-law who not surprisingly uh, considering this is a therapist uh, mm-hmm. and, and and married to my brother-in-law uh, once t- told me uh, just sort of innocuous that that like one of the main keys to marriage is just asking, how can I help?
1: Yes. Yes. And
0: just how far that goes, yeah, <laughs> you know, yes. it can, yeah. it can, it can be helpful. So I try to use that. No, nobody listens to me anyways, but, <laughs> but I, I try yeah. I try.
1: <laughs> no, I um, think that's, that can be really powerful.
0: So, um, Brando, what is, uh, self-care? What what are we doing to take care of ourselves despite all of these things going on?
1: Yeah, so I had a I had a really robust pre COVID self care. I'm serious mm. about my <laughs> self care, and you know I was I in I was in Zumba classes three times a week at the spa. You know, having sure. lunch with friends. So now in the middle of COVID, self care has been um, using Zoom for good. So I have a couple okay. of college friends. Once a month, we have a happy virtual hour. Um, taking walks. Um, Just getting away from the computer and going out to look at, you know, take a walk in nature um, is really important. But also spending time, however that is, whether it's on the phone or virtually with family, has been really important for me in this moment. I think as there's, you know, so many people have lost so many. My mom lost two brothers. As there's been so much loss, self-care has been... Uh, Really making sure that I'm connected with the people who, if I'm in the hospital on a ventilator, they're the ones who are checking on me. And I think too frequently we put our time and energy in workspaces and other spaces and the people who care the most about us get the least of us and the last of us. And I've been trying to flip that. So self-care has really been about that.
0: I love that. And that last little bit about the people who, who we love the most and who love us get get the least of us cuz cuz of this American way we've dialed of of, yes. of work and expectations and it's so true. I mean, I tried not to go home to my to my to my kids with with the last of my energy, yes. but because it's not fair to them for them to be tired and me to be tired and cranky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I want to give them something. So yes. I appreciate that. that's that living with direction, the the self-reflection. Yes. Um Last one, what is a book you've read this year that's open to your mind to something you hadn't considered or changed your thinking in some way? So and We've got a whole list of recommendations on bookshops. So.
1: Yeah, so one, I've done a lot of reading this year and attended a lot of book events. But one of the books that has really just stuck with me is Breathe, A Letter to My Sons by Imani Perry. So she's a professor at Princeton. She's the mom of um, um, two African-American males. And she wrote this letter to them about everything, about how to Mm -hmm. find joy, even when there's other things going on. But she says something in the book that has really impacted me. She said that awareness is is not in and of itself a virtue. That awareness has to be coupled with a moral imperative. And I think that fits Mm. to what you were saying about how, you know, you like to talk about action. And I think a lot of us have had an awareness about so many things in this past year, whether it's public health or uh, Black Lives Matter or whatever number of issues, climate change. But awareness in the absence of a moral imperative is not going to get us where we want to be. And so the book itself is brilliant, but she has a couple of nuggets in there like that, that are just life principles that really deeply impacted me.
0: I love that. Um, That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing. We'll throw that on the list and I will add that to my list of books that just keep piling up that (laughs) I'm trying to make my way through. Um, It's a good
1: problem to have. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I know it could be worse. Like I got tell my wife, like, my vices <laughs> could be much worse than this, clearly, you know? Um, support small bookshops. Yeah. Um, Baronda, where can our listeners follow you online should you choose to go that way? You sure, can feel free yeah. To- so
1: um, I'm on Twitter at Baronda M. am on Instagram at Baronda underscore M. And I have a website, barondamontgomery.com, where I drop blog posts every once in a while. So
0: Beautiful. Yes. Um. Well, listen. Thank you, Dr. Montgomery, for your time and your expertise and your life lessons here. Um, I feel like a changed human. Um, thank you again. Again, this the book is tremendous. Um, it is just, it, it's gorgeous. It's it's so thoughtful. There's again, there's ten thousand little things that I have underlined where I, you know I just have like WTF written next to them <laughs> because it's just yeah. like, what are you talking about? How's that possible? Yeah. Anyways, folks, uh, Lessons from Plants uh, is out there, Rhonda Montgomery. Thank you very much. Thanks. I really this appreciate it. This
1: was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at important, (sighs) not imp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at important, not important. Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us. You know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day.
1: Thanks, guys.